How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay, I suppose. It's uh, approaching the Ides of April, and as such, I'm uh, looking over some tax forms right now. Let's see, it looks like for podcasters, I need to turn to page 47. All right. Ah, here it is, column 6A. You feel the water close in over you as you gasp for air. The thought passes through your head that maybe the curse of the Jade Falcon was not just a silly superstition after all. At least Professor Irving isn't here to see how badly you mistranslated that old hermit's epitaph. But that fleeting notion doesn't comfort you for long. Your straining lungs have now filled with liquid. You. Are. Dead. Huh. Well, doesn't look like I'll be getting a refund this year. Let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Defenders, number 117, March, 1983. The Gift. Written by J.M. DeMatteis, drawn by Don Perlin, inked by Jack Abel, lettered by Shelley Lefferman, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, Hellcat, Gargoyle, and Overmindy. Previously in the Defenders. An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, billionaire to well-bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, was attempting to reconcile with his psychic ex-girlfriend Mindy when he ran afoul of a former government agent named August Masters. Masters was a fascist jerk with a Roman centurion fetish who wanted to blow up Russia. He kidnapped Mindy and five other psychics so he could use them as weapons. Kyle caught wind of these plans and thought they sounded shitty, so he and the rest of the Defenders attempted a rescue mission. It didn't go great. With the aid of the kidnapped psychics, the gang did manage to thwart August Master's scheme and blow up his secret fortress. But the explosion and its immediate aftermath resulted in the deaths of Nighthawk, Valkyrie, Mindy, and the rest of the psychics. Oh no! But then Valkyrie got better. Hooray! The sorcerously Scandinavian sword slinger ended up stronger than ever, with a slightly modified origin story and access to memories of her life in Asgard, which had previously been sealed off to her. Also, Mindy and the psychics got better. Hooray! Just before the explosion, the sextet of telepaths managed to merge their minds together and form a single entity made of pure thought. 
After teaming up with the Defenders to stop a pair of multitude-containing, nigh-omnipotent, nihilist assholes from destroying the universe, the Psychics hermit-crabbed their way into the abandoned body of Overmind, an elaborately bearded burly space weirdo, and took up residence there, forming a being I call Overmindy. Also, Kyle got better. Hooray! Only it turned out that he didn't. Because the version of him that we thought got better was actually a different Kyle from an alternate dimension, and the Kyle that we knew did die in the explosion after all. Bummer. Kyle's former nurse, Luann Bloom, blamed the Defenders for her employer's death. She began to pursue evidence of our titular non-team's malfeasance, which for some reason brought her into contact with a lethal non-sequitur from the Defenders' past. The elf with a gun, known as Elf with a Gun. Gadzooks! What does Elf with a Gun have planned for Luan Bloom? How will Overmindy attempt to gain closure after the deaths of her component selves? And will the gang hold a second funeral for Kyle now that they know he is dead after all? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... He drives her around South Carolina in a Model T Ford by traumatizing the friends and family of a dead child and punching a building, and sort of. The first time the gang had thought Kyle and Valkyrie were dead, they held a funeral service that featured elaborate magical pyrotechnics and was attended by a host of A-list superheroes, including Thor, Captain America, and Spider-Man. Kyle's second memorial service is considerably more subdued. Steve, Val, Patsy, Gargoyle, and Overmindy gather in a meadow in upstate New York, and Steve summons a magical trash can that he lit on fire in honor of Kyle's passing. Steve is like, Well, it looks like Kyle Richmond is dead again. He waits a few minutes and looks around to see if Kyle is going to show up and contradict him before he continues. And we're all pretty bummed out about it. Last time he died, I lit this trash can on fire and stuck it in another dimension. It's still on fire because I'm very good at magic, and it will burn forever in his honor. Patsy is like, Hey, didn't you light one of those for Val when you thought she was dead? Is that thing still on fire? Seems like it would be bad luck or something to have a memorial flame for a still-alive person, but wouldn't it also be bad luck to put out someone's eternal flame? What'd you end up doing with that thing anyway, Steve? Steve is like, Anyway, we'll all probably miss Kyle or something. Overmindy, part of you used to date Kyle. Would you like to say a few words? The outline of Overmindy's body shimmers, and they adopt the appearance of Mindy, a pretty blonde lady in her early thirties. Mindy whips out a bouquet of roses, lays them on the ground near Kyle's burning magic trash can, and is like, the part of me that was Mindy loved Kyle very much, so much that it made me a little loopy, and I maybe tried to kill him a couple of times. But now that I'm sharing a brain with five other people and Kyle's dead, I'm much saner, which is nice. But I'll always love you, Kyle. Bye. Everyone tears up a little bit at this moving speech. Overmindy then shifts their appearance back to being a beefy bearded alien, and is like, that felt good. Nice to get some closure on Mindy's past. 
I think I'll go try to do the same for the other people living in my brain. Off I go! Overmindy starts to walk away, but Gargoyle stops them and is like, well, Hold on there, Whippersnapper. I know a thing or two about putting your past behind you and adjusting to living in a new weird-looking powerful body. It can be a real bummer. Why don't I come with you? Steve is like, Yes, I'll come along as well. The Defenders may have started off as a group of iconoclastic heroes that I tricked and bullied into joining forces to save the world, but now I like to think of us as super best pals forever. Let's go get you some closure. Overmindy thinks that sounds fine, and after saying a tearful farewell to Val and Patsy, they fly off with Ike and Steve to say goodbye to their past selves. Once they're gone, Val turns to Patsy and is like, It's weird, I thought I'd be sadder about Kyle being dead, but I'm kind of at peace with it. Patsy is like, Well, I'm not. I'm super bummed out about it. Val is like, Well then, let's hang out and you can talk about it. We really haven't had much of a chance to spend time together since I came back from the dead. We'll have a girl's night. It'll be great. Patsy is at best ambivalent about this proposed plan, but it's like, um, okay, fine, I guess. Whatever. Patsy reluctantly hops on Val's Pegasus Aragorn, and together they fly off towards the city. Meanwhile, Overmindy, Steve, and Isaac arrive in the suburban town of Lakewood, New Jersey, and land on a hilltop overlooking a field where a group of children are playing baseball. Overmindy shifts their appearance to resemble another one of the psychics living in their head, Philip Le Guin. Philip is a brown-haired boy who, judging from his appearance and behavior, is somewhere between the ages of 3 and 19. It's a little tough to pin down. Over Phil rushes down the hill to join the children, who had apparently been friends with Philip. They are not exactly stoked to see him. Most of them just freak out and run away, but one kid, who was apparently Philip's best friend, Jim, is like, uh, I don't know who you are, but Philip is dead. Over Phil is like, no, Jim, it's me, Philip. I am a human child. Sounds convincing to me, but Jim is a tougher nut to crack. The young skeptic is like, here's the thing. You look like Philip, but you can't be. I'll never forget Phil, but I've moved on. This is creepy. I'm gonna run away now. True to his word, Jim runs away. Over Phil has tears in his eye and doesn't understand this rejection. Steve rolls up and is like, Look, Philip, the thing is, everyone thinks you're dead because you kind of are. I mean, your body blew up and now you're a ghost who's splitting the rent on an elaborately bearded alien's body with five other ghosts. For some reason, Steve's speech does little to console Ghost Philip. He screams, No! and runs off to his old house. When Overfill arrives, he sneaks through his bedroom window and finds that his parents are in there crying about how much they miss their dead son. Overfill pops up and is like, Good news! I'm back! Surprise! The Le Guins are indeed surprised. Phil's mom shrieks and passes out. Phil's dad is like, What kind of fucked up prank is this? If this is Alan Funt, I expected better of you. 
Now get out of here before I call the cops. Over Phil is hurt and confused by this reaction, and starts crying. Steve and Ike fly in through the window. Steve does some men in black style magic on the Le Guins to make them forget the whole incident, and Ike has a little chat with Overfill and tries to calm him down. Overfill is like, They wouldn't believe it was me. Why not? Gargoyle's like, Well, you aren't Phil anymore. Phil is still part of you, but you're also a weird hybrid of ghosts and an alien space monster. R remember? Overfill is like, Oh yeah. Good point. I think I can move on now. Really? That did it? Okay, good for you, kid. Phil's form changes back into the traditional overmind body, and they fly off towards the city with Steve and Ike to try to get themselves even more of that sweet, sweet closure. Meanwhile, <sighs> Elf with a Gun and Luann Bloom are riding through rural South Carolina in a Model T Ford. Luann is like, Are you going to show me evidence of the Defender's malfeasance? Elf with a gun is like, Yup, eventually. Then he drives the Model T into a rotting shack, which I guess is the portal into one of those weird dimensions filled with geographical nonsense shapes, because that's where they end up. Okay. Back in New York, Val and Hellcat are flying over the city. Val is like, Patsy, I can't help but notice that you're being kind of a dick lately. What's going on? Patsy's like, Nothing's wrong. Shut up. Val is like, Patsy, I know you, and I can tell something's going on. Patsy is like, You don't know me. I'm happy as shit. Val is about to protest, but then she sees some cops chasing someone, and she's like, Sweet. Let's assume that whoever is being chased is guilty and beat the crap out of them. It'll be just like old times. Without waiting to hear Hellcat's response, Valkyrie swoops down and picks up the fleeing car. The fugitives inside hop out and start shooting at her, so Val beats them up. She seems to be having a pretty good time doing it, too. When the fight's over, Patsy, who had been sitting on the sidelines during the kerfuffle, is like, Are you done? Good. I'm going home. She turns and starts walking away. Val grabs Patsy's shoulder and is like, Hey, what gives? As soon as Val touches her, Patsy freaks the fuck out and is like, Get your fucking hands off of me! She uses her claw grappling hook thingy to swing off into the night. Val hops on Aragorn and catches up to her. Patsy's like, Just leave me alone, okay? Val is like, No, not okay. What's going on? Patsy's like, Fine! Ever since you came back from the dead and got your old memories back, you've been acting all different. I'm a comic book character with red hair, so I'm a little bit psychic, and I can tell that you're not the same person you used to be. You've changed, and that scares me. You're like a stranger. Val is like, A stranger? That is some straight-up bullshit. I've been putting up with your nonsense all night, and I am sick of it. She grabs Patsy, throws her on Aragorn's back, and flies off with her. Patsy is like, where are we going? Val is like, you'll see. Across town in the South Bronx, Steve, Isaac, and Overmindy are hanging out in front of an abandoned tenement building. Steve turns to Overmindy and is like, so which of your head ghosts used to live here? Overmindy is like, the, the only, only other one you've, you've met, met, Ursula Richards. Richards. 
over Mindy shifts their appearance again, this time taking on the form of an attractive young black woman. Over Ursula is like, I used to live here when I was a kid, but both of my parents died by the time I was a teenager. I worked really hard to get out of this neighborhood, but to do that, I ended up isolating myself from anyone I might have been close with. By the time I was in my 20s, I had a good job and was making a lot of money, but I didn't have any friends. And now I'm dead. I blame this neighborhood. They shift their appearance back to being a big burly beardo and start punching the shit out of a nearby building. The local citizens are all like, Hooray! That building's been condemned for years! It's a menace! Go, beardo, go! But Steve is like, Hey, Overmindy, knock it off, will ya? There were some kids playing in that building and I had to use magic to save them. Overmindy is like, Oh, oh shit. shit. Sorry. Gargoyle is like, That's okay. You're right to be upset about the social inequality and racism that make this neighborhood dangerous, but you can't solve those problems by punching buildings. Turns out you can't even solve economic issues by selling a young woman's soul to demons. Who knew? Now, let's go home, and maybe tomorrow the three of us can use our immense supernatural powers to battle social injustices. Overmindy is like, Will we really do that? Gargoyle is like, Probably not, but wouldn't it be pretty to think so? Let's go. The three heroes fly off into the night. Meanwhile, Valkyrie and Hellcat have arrived at their destination. Coastal Maine. Patsy is like, what are we doing here? Val is like, I wanted to talk about our feelings, so I figured we should go someplace where I could guarantee we would be the only people in the state doing that. Patsy is like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Say, this place looks kind of familiar. Val is like, that's the other reason I chose this place. The last time we were here, we fought a giant magic evil robot that was trying to blow up the universe. Patsy is like, oh yeah, the Omegatron. Val is like, yes, it was your first time fighting that thing, but I had fought it once before, when I had first joined the Defenders. At the time, most of my memories were gone, and I was trying to figure out who I was and where I belonged. I started making new memories that day fighting alongside what Steve likes to call the Super Best Pals Forever. Once you joined the non-team, your friendship became one of my favorite things about the new life that I was building. Now that I have access to more of myself, it does nothing to diminish the important role you played in me becoming who I was, and I want our bond to remain an important part of who I am and who I will be. You're my best friend, you big dummy! Patsy and Val cry and hug. Then they begin the long trip back to the Sanctum Sanctimonious. I like to think they probably stop somewhere along the way to get a lobster roll, because they're not fucking idiots. When they arrive, Overmindy is lifting a bookshelf over their head and giving a little speech about how strong and tough they are, but how they still have a lot to learn. They say that they're glad they put the past lives of Mindy, Ursula, Philip, and I guess the other three weirdos who live in their elaborately bearded head, behind them, and are ready to move forward. Steve is like, 
Well then, I'm glad Patsy and Valkyrie are here to help me officially announce the newest member of our unofficial non-team. Over, Mindy, congratulations. Welcome to the Super Best Pals Forever! Patsy is like, can we just go back to calling ourselves the Defenders? Everyone agrees that that is probably for the best. The end. And joining us once again, live and in person, is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's going quite well. I am slightly unnerved by the fact that we don't need to count to a number between one and four and clap. I mean, for those of you keeping score at home, we can tell them now, now that we're not doing it. The number is three. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, you don't need to be so cryptic about it. Well, I just, you know, what was your metaphor? It was a peek behind the sausage factory? <laughs> yeah. Okay. People want to see how the sausage is made. Mm -hmm. And they want to see, you know, what happens in the building behind the place where the sausage is made. Probably some gambling. Yep. And so that's why when you record remotely to uh, sync the tracks up, count to the mystery number, which is three. Mm -hmm. and we, we, take, both we can clap. reveal it. Yep. And like then we, would it make you feel more comfortable if we did that now? Let's do it. Okay. You ready? Mm -hmm. One, two, three. Okay. Pretty good. You're a little bit behind and I had always thought that was lag. <laughs> <laughs> You're a little bit early. Tough, but fair. <laughs> we both play the drums. Sorry, drummers. Huh? That's like a musician thing where they give the drummer a hard time about being too fast or too slow. Oh, gotcha. You know. Right, right. Because of the time when a drummer broke into the house where three bears lived? Yep. Well, you want to talk about a comic book? <laughs> sure, let's do it. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Unlike my feelings towards exploring feelings in real life, I enjoyed this comic book that explored the feelings of these characters. Gotcha. Yeah. Those who can't do read about it. <laughs> sure. I enjoyed it too. I tend to like the smaller slice of life comic books. I think maybe my favorite subgenre of the superhero genre is the setting the stage issue. We've talked about it before, and this does seem like it is trying to set up what the new normal for the Defenders is. They got a new member in this issue, and so they have an issue that is on a kind of smaller scale where they explore a little bit what the relationships are between the different characters and establish what the Defenders is and a little bit about their history in a way that I thought really worked well. There were some really nice moments in this. I wasn't crazy about all of it, but in general, pretty fun issue. Yeah, it was a good read. I feel like if there was an underlying theme for it, it was about embracing change as relationships move forward. Or, as it was written, I think more than once in the comic, you know, you're you, but not you. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I think that the larger theme that it explores, and actually what I wrote down for it was change, growth, transformation. And I think that is kind of the theme of this issue in a lot of ways. And it's one that it, for the most part, I think does a pretty good job with. Mm -hmm. It's something that J.M. DeMatteis, I think, likes to explore in general. I am realizing, I think it's a little bit weird that I love superhero comics, but my favorite superhero comic books are the ones where nobody does any superheroing. Yeah, 
It's like the good parts of like the buddy cop movie. Yeah. Like, oh gosh, what would be? I'm trying to think of an example of uh, one that I might like. Well, it's not necessarily a buddy cop, but a buddy crook movie, like in Pulp Fiction, when they're sitting around and talking about what they call a whopper in France. Yeah. Or what if it was like set in Australia and there was a wombat and then a guy and it was just like a guy in this wombat that hung out, but you could have a thought bubble for the wombat. Like that would that's your pitch for a buddy cop movie, a guy and a wombat who are both cops in Australia. Yeah, but the guy is probably like a park ranger (laughs) and the wombat's a sidekick. He's got a little hat. Is he a sidekick or is he a foil to him? Kind of like a Yogi Bear park ranger situation. Ah, A hooch to his turner. Well, I mean, Hooch and Turner were partners. They weren't adversaries. Oh, I thought foil like uh, the guy that makes the joke possible. Oh, no, I don't mean foil like uh, the foil you would wrap a burrito in to uh, help accentuate the burrito. Oh, a foil like in fencing where you stab the guy with it. Yes, yes. So you're seeing them more as uh, friendly adversaries. Well, yeah, you know, they like to um, have some witty exchanges as wombats and park rangers probably do sure yeah no it's a lot like that i think this issue is a lot like a buddy cop movie about a wombat and a park ranger in australia oh you and your square poops that's australian right (laughs) oh or i think maybe like the wombat would be like the wackier one so like he'd be trying to get the park ranger to come out of his shell and he'd say something like crikey you're more of a square than me poops are Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. This thing practically writes itself. Hollywood, hit us up. <laughs> Send those checks to Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Yeah. We got a little bit off topic there. Hmm. We should probably start drinking our liquor. Oh, my. Hey, look at that. You get a whiskey and I get a rum. Is that it? Yep. We're like a regular, what's the wombat's name, you think? Hooch, right? Yeah, so the wombat's named Hooch, and the park ranger is, what's a good Australian name? Dingo's Brumby Struth. Yeah. So Dingo's Brumby Struth and Hooch. No, we can't use that. that, It'll just be like too much of a clear ripoff if we actually name it after the dog. Okay, how about we name him Turner? Whoa. Yeah. Nice. All right, this is a good movie. Yeah. Man, we keep trying to (laughs) talk about this comic and we just keep getting pulled into McBum... McBrump... What was it? Uh, Brumby Struth. Not Mick Brumby Struth. <laughs> oh, that would be ridiculous. Brumby Struth and Turner. Right. It's a good movie. Mm-hmm. I wrote some things down on this paper <laughs> about this comic book. And now I look at them, all I see is wombats and those hats that are like right, cowboy one, hats that one side goes up on. Why do they do that? Is it so they can tuck a boomerang into that? <laughs> In my mind, that's what they do. Like, like you would a press card in a fedora. They got a little boomerang tucked into that hat. I don't know. Maybe it's for shooting rifles? Oh, right. Wait, no, then American cowboys would also have to do that. Unless they just didn't think of it. Oh. Plus, they don't generally use rifles as much. Like, uh, American cowboys, I think they're more into, like, pistols, right? Well, there's usually the one guy with, like, the the Winchester rifle in the movie. Yeah, Danny Glover in Silverado. Right. Okay. I can see Danny Glover wearing a hat like that. He was just so good he didn't need to. Oh, boy. He's like, I don't need your Australian hat. Is that a good Danny Glover cowboy voice? That's a very good Danny Glover impression. Thanks. So. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, no. It's nice for me to be on the other side of a derailed conversation. (laughs) 
Sorry, I had to bounce back, flip it, and reverse it. I know, yeah, yeah. Irregular Missy Elliott. Mm-hmm. In many ways. Mm. So we talked about how one of the major themes of this issue is change and the effect that it has on relationships. Mm-hmm. We see that explored in a few different ways. The main one is with Overmindy trying to get some closure from past relationships with some of the six of her personalities. It is a little bit awkward to me. That is one of the problems I did have with this issue is when I thought there were like a million psychics living in her mind, the fact that we had only met three of them made sense. But when there's only six of them, and over the course of a number of issues now, we've only met three of them, that seems to be a little bit more of an issue, you know? You don't feel like it's, uh, like if you were in charge of the creative arc, you'd just want to keep three in your back pocket for, I don't know, things were slow. Maybe that's what's happening, but it would at least be nice to have a name for one of them, you know? I feel like we should have something for those other three at this point. We see pictures of their faces, and we also get a bit of exposition that, oh yeah, those other guys totally work their shit out too. Yeah. It did seem a little bit narratively convenient that we just get the same three over and over again, and really barely any of the two that aren't Mindy. This is the first time we really are introduced much to Philip and Ursula other than their names. I think maybe they had appeared in a Captain America issue before, but we really don't learn much about their personalities other than like their master statuses. Like, Philip is a kid. That's what his personality is. And a little bit more troublingly, to a large extent, Ursula is a black woman. That is what her personality is. It doesn't really go into much detail about them. Yeah, I I don't know. I think it's kind of an interesting idea to explore this, like what happens when, you know, you work hard to achieve success and and it's lonely. But at the same time, I don't know, it felt a little bit weird, right? Because it was saying, okay, like if you do that, you can't have any friends that came from your community. Right. Well, I think that is what Ursula is trying to address a little bit. And maybe that is part of what she is frustrated with. Like, she shows up in her old neighborhood and is sad because she doesn't have anybody that she's close to because she put all that behind her when she moved up in the world, as she puts it. And then she is angry at the circumstances that created that, and she gets mad and punches a building. Which I understand, but I don't know. I would have liked maybe a little bit more of an exploration of her character. Yeah, that said... That one was a little, I don't know, easier to read than Phillips because, I don't know, we'll get into this, but I'm kind of blaming Steve on this one. He's like, you know what would make you feel better? Go scare the shit out of everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Little dead kid shows up and is like, hey, I want to play. That is inherently terrifying. That and then, oh, my parents are sad. I'll sneak in through my bedroom window and stick my head in and be like, hey, it's your ghost kid. Everyone's reactions to him, though, is also a little bit weird, though, because it kind of follows almost the inverse of what you see in a lot of horror and sci-fi movies, where an alien creature shows up and everyone is immediately like, oh, nice costume, Mm -hmm. where if somebody showed up looking like they did, they are clearly either not human or are in such a good costume that it would be legitimately terrifying. You know, Mm -hmm. but because it's Halloween, everyone's just like nice costume with Philip. Everyone has the opposite reaction where 
he is a child who is identical to their close friend who died. And everybody looks at him and is just like, why are you fucking with us pretending to be Philip? Not funny. What are you, some kind of a joker? I don't know. It, it seems like they would be more taken aback than that. I know his mom passes out, but his dad doesn't even entertain the idea that something weird is going on. It's just, this is obviously a practical joke. Yeah, not to like diss tweens, but that's a really serious amount of effort that would go into that practical joke. I don't I don't see yeah. these kids pulling that off. I don't see anybody being able to pull that off, frankly. Like, no offense, but if you died and then you showed up at my door and said, I'm back, I would certainly have questions, but I wouldn't just immediately leap to someone who resembles you identically has clearly come to my house and is playing a prank on me. Get your filthy hands off of me. Yeah. That's what his dad says to him. Mm-hmm. Which I understand his dad is going through some shit, but I think what this does speak to is a larger comic book issue of everyone has propaphasia. Like, everyone in comic books is face blind. Or, at the very least, masks in comic books are really, really good. Mm-hmm. Possibly a combination of the two. Well, I mean, I know it's in the other story, but wildebeest masks... Yeah. Really fucking good. But it's the same thing. Like, it would also make sense if just everybody's face blind, then, yeah, disguises. If you change the context of a person, then you change their appearance fully. Mm -hmm. And it would seem like that is maybe what is happening in all of these books. So, I don't know. That's my no prize for it, is that in both the Marvel 616 universe and the DC universe, everyone is face blind. I like it. It explains the bad disguise thing, too. Mm -hmm. Explains the secret identity issues. The success of a fedora and a trench coat. Mm -hmm. Or the version of that that Gargoyle wears, which we will definitely get to later. So much style. Oh, boy. The reactions of his parents aren't the only weird thing about Philip in this book. I also thought... His choice of decor in his room was a little bit strange. He's got a Rocky poster on his wall, sort of. It's like maybe one of those like Time Magazine things where you're supposed to take your own picture and put it under there, because it has like the Rocky font at the top, but then it seems to just be a blank poster under that. Other than that, he's got a lot of sports stuff, like he's a real sport Billy. You ever watch that cartoon when you were a kid? No, I thought that was just an expression I didn't know. Yeah, it's like a hillbilly, but for sports. Sportbilly. <laughs> no, there was a cartoon on when I was a kid that did not air for very long, but it was my favorite cartoon when I was a kid, and I have wildly misremembered it because I looked it up. I had thought that it was just about a kid named Billy who was good at sports, mm -hmm. but it is in fact about an alien who looks like a kid whose name is Billy, and he's from Planet Good at Sports, and he comes to Earth and then has to fight bad aliens with his good at sports prowess. Whoa. Yeah. He was apparently the uh, mascot for FIFA before he became a cartoon. Wait. <laughs> FIFA's the soccer organization, yeah. right? Yeah. And their mascot was a character from the show or the mascot became a character on the show? The mascot became the show. Like, they had a mascot and then they're like, hey, I bet we can make a cartoon out of this mascot. So was he good at all sports or just soccer? He was good at all sports. Wow. That seems a little far-fetched. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most planets are good at one or two sports, but all of them? Can't have your cake and eat it, too. No. Basketball and curling? I don't think so. 
That'd be a fun sport, though. Ugh. But in addition to sports, the other decorations that are up in Billy's room are Marvel characters, specifically Spider-Man and the Hulk. Now, I understand that in our universe, Spider-Man and the Hulk, especially in 82, 83, are probably the two most popular Marvel characters. But within the Marvel universe, they are both hated and feared. Like, Spider-Man is incredibly controversial. The Daily Bugle is constantly wondering whether he's a threat or a menace. He is often wanted by the police in questioning for multiple crimes. And the Hulk is public enemy number one. He is constantly being harangued by the federal government as well as the local government. Cops see him, they shoot him on sight. Why does he have a licensed trash can? Yeah, good question. I don't know, maybe the kid's uh, it's got like a little bit of anti-hero. Yeah, just thing. like he's a super edgy kid. Yeah. Like if we peel back the Rocky poster, there's like a Travis Bickle poster under it. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, the Rocky poster is in the scene where his parents are sitting on his bed mourning his death. Mm -hmm. It's weirdly drawn, too, because, as you mentioned, it looks like it's made to, like, you put your own picture in there, but his mom's face is drawn right on it. I was like, why is his mom on the Rocky poster? Oh, I got it. Okay. Right. Maybe it is a mirror. I, I think my cousin had, like, a Time Magazine Man of the Year mirror, where, like, you look in the mirror and then it, like, frames it so, like, you're Time's Man of the Year. Whoa. So maybe it's like that. Like, I'm Rocky. Also, I get that this is the year that Rocky 3 came out. And at that point, Rocky is more of like a children's hero. But he has a poster for Rocky 1. And that movie's not for kids. No, it's not. Kids would be bored as shit at that movie. I mean, I really like it. But it's like, yeah, you know what? I like this uh, illiterate palooka who's on his last legs who maybe thinks he can make it in the big leagues. That said, remember, movies and TV used to go slower. That's true. So, I don't know. I think kids might have been okay with it. Yeah, but it, it is kind of like if you had like a Columbo poster on this wall. Well. I mean, that'd be a cool kid. You know, it's like you consume the media that's available to you. I watched a lot of Matlock and Murder, She Wrote as a little kid. Just because fair. those are the things that came in. I was like, oh, this is good TV. I didn't sure. realize it was like old people stuff. But I don't recall you trying to send away for a Jessica Fletcher poster when you were a kid. Ah, touche. <laughs> Not until you were much older. Ah, you know, as we mature, so do our tastes. Indeed. So we talked about Ursula a little bit and Philip a little bit. Mm -hmm. We also get a very brief scene with Mindy in it, where basically they show up at Kyle's grave for second funeral, I guess, like they're morning hobbits or whatever. <laughs> and they're like, well, he really is dead this time. We're pretty sure. So more mourning, I guess. And she basically shows up and is like, well, I loved Kyle, but now he's dead, so I'm sane. Good talk. Now I put that behind me. Yeah, I had pretty mixed feelings about that, where on one hand, I was like, hey, good for her. Closure, moving on. Sure. On the other hand, I'm still kind of mad at Kyle for killing her or thinking he killed her and not caring that he killed her, maybe. Yeah, and the caption work definitely glosses over that. And maybe that is the way that she sees it now, but she frames it that I loved him so much that it drove me mad. Or 
He nearly killed you in a car accident and you were super pissed off, so you, in my mind justifiably, bought some old Doom bots and repainted them as hippies and tried to have them kill him with laser guitars and uh, picket signs. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty reasonable. Right. But, no, we, we just gloss over that. She drops some flowers on his grave and she gives a little speech where she's like, well... I was crazy, but now there's five other people in my head, so that makes me sane. Good talk, everybody. Yeah, a little weird. That being said, I do think that Overmindy is a very interesting character, and I was kind of stoked at the end when they officially joined the team. Yeah, me too. I don't know. I guess it shouldn't be concerning that there's a character who like all characters in comics, can have a magical power that does everything that is needed to be done. But this one especially seems imbued with such a thing. I would not hate it if we got, at some point, even a slight clarification of what their powers are, besides just whatever they want. I can lift a bookcase. I can destroy worlds with my mind. (laughs) Take your pick. It does seem odd that those are viewed as being somewhat on par. That's a big bookcase, but... It was a pretty big bookcase. That's fair. Have you ever tried to move a bookcase that had books in it? I have not. I have, because I'm dumb. (laughs) And uh, I gotta say, might be easier to destroy a planet. Oh, wow. Books are fucking heavy. Yeah. So, one of the other... Not even stories, but an interlude that we get in this is another brief installment of Elf with a Gun. We don't really get much from it. They keep giving us tiny bits of this story, just feeding us breadcrumbs with it. And I don't know, man, I wish some duck would come and eat those breadcrumbs so we don't have to see where the trail leads. I do, too. Even though that it's bad for ducks to do that, it would be worth it. Yeah. Sorry, ducks. So... What is the chronology of this interlude? Is it when Patty was on her dad quest that this happened? Because... That's not Patsy. That's Luann Bloom. Oh. They changed. They made her hair red in this issue, which I agree is confusing. But it did look like Patsy was riding in a Model T with Elf with a gun. Oh, that's right. That's, that's right. Luann Bloom, not because Patsy. Because she's going to figure out what the Defenders had to do with her buddy Kyle's death. And right. She's pissed off. I got right. It. But also, why does Elf with a Gun have a Model T? They're piling too many weird hipster things onto this elf. He's already got a little elf costume and a gun. We get that he's weird. He doesn't need more weird shit. Yeah, I don't like this character. Also, why are they in South Carolina? I don't know. Just do Elves with a Gun canonically like a mustard sauce? Over a vinegar sauce? Yeah, that's the South Carolina one, right? No, North Carolina would be the mustard one, right? I'm going to have to go rewatch my uh, competitive barbecue series to uh, get back to you. Okay. Would you mind doing that after the show? Oh, yeah. Okay. But he, he drives the Model T into a shack in South Carolina that I guess is a space shack because then they're in space or in another weirdo dimension or whatever. No capybaras walking naked youth pastors, though. So that's good. Good. Disappointing, more like. Do you think all Model Ts can fly? Because the only two examples of them that I can think of in fiction are, uh, well, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was one, and that car could fly, right? I don't remember, but it sounds reasonable. Seems like that car could probably fly. Mm -hmm. It had magical powers at the very least. There's the one from Flubber that the absent-minded professor had. 
and there's Elf with a gun. I think those might be the only three Model Ts, and they could all fly. Hmm. So, I don't know. Elf with a gun. <laughs> Tough but fair. The other story that we get in this comic is my favorite part of the book. The relationship between Patsy and Val. Patsy coming to terms, being forced to come to terms, really, with the fact that, yes, Val is growing and changing, but is still herself. And in some ways is more herself. And that doesn't mean that she is not friends with Patsy. I loved this story. I thought it was really fun. I thought it was a useful potential metaphor for a lot of things. You know, I think superhero comics in general tend to be like a metaphor for adolescence in a lot of ways, like growing and changing and getting new powers Mm -hmm. and new responsibilities. And so if you have a childhood friend, then a lot of times like you'll grow up with them and the person that they were is different than the person that they are. But the friendship remains and because they are becoming someone more than who they used to be doesn't mean that who they were is a lie. Yeah. And I mean, not just friendships too, right? Like your family relationships, your romantic relationships, if they last long enough. Sure. And it, it also, this is not something that I'm really qualified to speak on, but it does kind of seem like it could be, and I don't know to what extent it's intended as one, but a metaphor for coming out too. You see that Valkyrie is now a more complete person. Mm-hmm. and is acknowledging and trying to explore different sides of her personality. And because of that, Patsy feels abandoned or like, oh, you're not the person I thought you were. I feel betrayed by that mm-hmm. and resentful. And her having to come to terms with, no, you are more yourself than you were. And that doesn't weaken or negate our friendship. Yeah. And the way that Val navigated that in her typical, like, unapologetic fashion was a delight it was valkyrie in general in this comic book was a fucking delight i really like the way jm Demetrius writes her i like this new more confident valkyrie that we get it never really fit right to me the way that a lot of people have written her before where she's like i don't know the stranger in a strange land type thing works for the character in some ways like she's from asgard and she's on Earth. But so many people wrote that in a way that made her deferential to whatever men were around her. Mm-hmm. And this Valkyrie is definitely not that. She is having a good time being a badass and is uncompromising and fun and just awesome. Yeah. Also, really good flying horse placement. Mm-hmm. There's so many moonshots. Like a silhouette in front of the moon of the flying horse? Not just of the flying horse, because we also see that Patsy silhouettes herself against the full moon Mm -hmm. as well in an almost Spider-Man pose where she's swinging from her claw grappling hooks. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, good moon stuff. Did you ever see those uh, book plates that I got? I found them in like a thrift store and they were by Boris Vallejo. And so they were like naked lady riding a flying horse across the moon. Whoa, no, painted on a plate? Book plates, the things that you paste on the inside of a book to say this book belongs to. Oh, I didn't know what those were called. I might be getting it wrong. Hmm. Book plates might be how you print books in publishing, but I think that's what they're called. I know what you mean. Yeah. But uh, yeah, those are pretty rad. I wish I knew where they were. 
Me too. I think if I opened up a book and I had one of those in there, I would be like, oh, I don't want to steal this book from this person. <laughs> I, I'll find them and give them back. Yeah. That's what they're there for. Yeah. A little intimidating. Mm-hmm. But yeah, good moon placement with, uh, with the Patsy and the Aragorn. Yep. Good work all around the moon. Nice hustle. I know the moon and I have had our differences in the past, but in this issue, it does a good job. I'm a big enough man to admit that. Good for you. See, everybody's growing. Yeah. That being said, you watch it, Moon. You step out of line. Good night. Why do you think they have Kyle's memorial pyre in upstate New York? I don't think any of them have any particular ties to that region. Is it just so it'll be out of the way? I'm sure he owns some property up there. Where? No, his ranch was in... New Jersey, right? It was in Long Island. Oh. I wonder if it is just like that's where land is cheaper and they figure it'll be out of the way. And also, if I can be even more cynical about it, if you put the memorial out of sight, it's less embarrassing when characters inevitably get resurrected. Mm-hmm. All right. Problem solved. Nice work. Well, we've got a bunch more to talk about in this issue, but I think most of what I wanted to talk about is going to come up in the minutia. Anything else you want to talk about before we head there? I forgot to use the, the phrase that I coined when we talked about the elf part. I called it an elf derlude. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts. We got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, normally I let you pick, but for reasons, I want to start off with sartorially speaking. That okay with you? Well, I suppose. All right. What instances of fashion in this comic book did you find most compelling? Just the coordinated morning wear, like sad, not early. (laughs) The trench coats that the Defenders have on. Oh, sure. What an ensemble. What popped collars? What patterns? (laughs) Yeah, you have Patsy wearing a, I don't know, hot pink little red riding hood combo. Mm-hmm. It's got just a pink jumpsuit with a hood, sort of, maybe cape, trench coat. Cape thing. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Steve, I think, is just wearing his fairly standard trench coat, right? Mm-hmm. London Vogue. Overmind is wearing his uh, space gladiator costume, yep. which at some point it does seem like he should maybe give some thought to. Like, None of the personalities in him have any connection to that particular outfit, and it does seem very specific and a kind of super villainy look. Also, that beard is a bit much. If nothing else, just trim the beard, Dan. Yeah, the flame-shaped beard is a big no for me. Also, the weird beetle helmet is an odd choice, too. I don't know. I feel like I would just be hitting my head on stuff all the time, especially if I was eight feet tall and had a hat like that. Yeah. The other weird thing about his costume is I don't think it's been consistently drawn this way. But in this issue, the shading seems to be always done in a way that makes it look like he is wearing a domino mask as part of his costume. It's especially obvious on the first page, but really throughout the comic, it does look like he's wearing one of those little Robin style masks. And, uh, Why? He is like a nine-foot-tall dude with a flame-shaped beard and a scarab helmet. 
He's not concealing his identity with that thing. Even in the Marvel Universe, where no one can remember faces, the context of his outfit makes it pretty goddamn clear who he is. I think what it reminds me most of is, do you remember I had that poster of Mr. T that I got out of a coloring book? And I put electrical tape over his eyes to protect his anonymity, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that he was clearly Mr. T, and it said Mr. T in big letters next to him. Mm -hmm. It's about that good a disguise that Overmindy has. Tough but fair. And Val has a big blue trench coat on. It's a good funeral scene. It is. Now let's get to the standout star fashion-wise of this. Gargoyle. He is not wearing a trench coat and fedora. He is wearing a bucket hat and a plaid coat that is buttoned all the way up to the top. Corey, Gargoyle, is dressed like Sendog from Cypress Hill. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the funky bilingual. Seriously, I, I kept looking at different pictures of it, and I kept picturing Sendog. Like, where's his blunt? <laughs> well, what a lot of people don't remember is that Insane in the Membrane was a diss track. We were talking shit about Chub Rock and Kid Frost. Oh, how I could just kill a fella. <laughs> Doesn't seem right, does it? But I was just a young man then. Oh, cops, come and try to snatch my crops. <laughs> These pigs want to blow my house down. I'm going to throw that ham in the frying pan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fun. But yeah, I just, I love that uh, that Gargoyle is dressed like Sendog throughout the issue. And I hope that is a look he keeps going back to. Me too. Because it is a quality one. Any other fashion you want to talk about or? That's the important stuff, right? That's the main one. Yeah. There's some nicely dressed thugs later on that Valkyrie beats up. Mm-hmm. One of them had a purple suit with a yellow shirt. But... Yep. Blue cap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. What do you feel like hitting up next? Let's just get the sound effects out of the way. Okay. What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? I had a duo uh, okay. that were pretty close to each other. And I believe it was when Over Mindy is punching buildings. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a womb followed by a foom. Yep. Good womb foom. Like the womb foom combo. Mm-hmm. The foom always, uh, oh, friends of old Marvel. That's mm-hmm. fun. That is fun. I enjoyed those. I also, we have maybe done this before, but I don't know if this has been the specific noise that bullet deflections make when Val is easily batting aside bullets with Dragon Fang, her enchanted sword. It makes the noise ping, wing, ping. Mm. Ping, wing, ping. Pretty fun. Makes it clear that those bullets are not going to hurt her. No way. Yeah. Good stuff. Corey, Mm -hmm. there's a question I have to ask you. Behold or be gone? Mm. This week's Behold or Be Gone is inspired by the fact that when I realized that Gargoyle was dressed like Sendog, I went down kind of a... Cypress Hill and then just send dog in general rabbit hole mm-hmm. and ended up watching the video for Trace Delacuentes, the song by Delinquent Habits that send dog did a guest spot on. So good. I really do love that song. The video in general, not great, mm. but there was one very interesting part of the video in which 
Wee Man from Jackass is doing skateboard tricks on a bar top in a dive bar in Mexico. Whoa. If we go with the fact that Gargoyle might be Sendog, that does put us in a universe where the Defenders coexist with the crew from Jackass. Mm -hmm. What do you think of recasting Jackass with one member of the Defenders? And if you do, which Defender do you want to see in a Jackass movie? Oh, that's pretty easy for me. I want to see... um... Steve Strange in the Johnny Knoxville role getting hurt. Yes, you are 100% right. I want to see Steve getting <laughs> beat up in elaborate ways and have affronted dignity about it the whole time. Specifically, I want him to be in the Johnny Knoxville role because I want him to have to introduce it mm-hmm. and have him say, I am Stephen Strange, the Sorcerer Supreme, and welcome to Jonathan Bottom. I'm not saying anything vulgar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I would, I would buy a ticket to go see that. Yeah, just seeing Steve get hit in the balls over and over again with like a giant hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that would be terrific. I really would like to see that. Sounds like we have a pair of beholds. Indeed. I do like the idea that Steve would call Jackass Jonathan Butt. When, uh... Our mutual friend Brian used to be a teacher's aide in an elementary school. This was during kind of the height of Jackass's popularity. And he related to me that the children knew they couldn't say Jackass because the ass is a bad word. Mm -hmm. So they would call the show Jackbutt. Whoa. It sounds. It sounds much worse. It sounds different. Yeah. Has a different quality. Mm -hmm. But I think that uh, Steve would go it a step further and would, you know, use the more formal version of Jack. Mm-hmm. Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Butt. Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, if that pie were not made out of steel? There were some good examples of prose in, in this overall that I enjoyed, but I think the one that I'll pick is when the Philip character is trying to reconnect with his childhood friends and they're all freaked out and they run away Mm -hmm. there's a bit of exposition that reads and he watches incredulous as three of his friends scamper off into the night the sound of their sneakers slapping the pavement rebounding back to him like a taunt Ooh, that is good yeah it's just you know he could just hear it yeah and feel his sadness and that it's pretty evocative it is but you know what does cheer me up the word scamper Mm -hmm. it's a fun word And it reminds me of something that I learned on the internet recently. Oh. Which is that in Japan, do you know what they call the show Jersey Shore? No. Macaroni Rascals. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. I watched like four episodes in a row of one of Japan's longest running reality TV shows called Old Enough. Have you seen that? I watched three episodes of that last night. It is so damn cute. It is really, really cute. They just send children out to do tasks by themselves, but like not in a dangerous, like there's a camera crew around making sure that nobody runs them over or anything. But yeah, watching a toddler go to the store by themselves and try to buy shit. Hilarious. So cute. Really good. My favorite words in the issue, and I agree with you, there were many to choose from, but my favorites were something that Valkyrie said. We talked about how fun she is in this issue, and this is just an example of that. 
Patsy says, a cop car chasing someone. Big deal. And Valkyrie says, Tis more than that, Patsy. Tis an invitation to adventure. Mm. Come, friend. Let the invitation be answered. Let the revelry begin. Hold, villains. Good for her. Copaganda aside, that's just some fun shit. It is. She likes beating up the bad guys. She does. And uh, yeah, I just like that she's like, ha ha, a chance to fight? What fun for me. Val's rad. She is a lot of fun in this issue. Corey, every issue of a Defenders comic book has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who did you have as your best defender? And who did you have as your worst offender? Pretty straightforward, I think. I had for my best Val for basically all the reasons that we talked about. She's Mm -hmm. a good friend. She's true to herself. She's fun. She's honest. She kicks butt. I had the same choice as my best. For worst, I had Steve for giving little Philip the terrible advice of just go scare the shit out of everybody who cares about you (laughs) to get your mojo back. I think that's not cool. I agree that that is not cool. On the other hand, I did kind of appreciate that it is almost a old enough situation where Steve is hanging back and he's going to erase the memories of everybody who might get hurt by that. Just the parents. Oh, he didn't yeah, mind wipe right. little kids. They're going to grow up to be all screwed up because of this. Eh, kids are resilient. <laughs> you never saw one of your dead friends reanimated when you were a kid. No. Come on, Corey. You grew up on a commune. <laughs> That's not how communes work. Really? Yeah. That's disappointing. Sorry. I had forgotten that he left those kids traumatized and apparently have a poor understanding of communal living. So (laughs) I did not go with Steve as my worst. I went with Gargoyle as my worst because if he is Sendog, then I don't like the way that he body shamed Kid Frost in the uh, Sog Insane (laughs) in the Membrane. That's not cool. Uh, Nope. Seriously, I, I was honestly blown away when I found out that was a diss track against uh, Chub Rock and Kid Frost. I didn't know anybody beefed with those guys. Me neither. It's a shame. So, yeah, bad, bad job in that one regard, Gargoyle. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, I still do like Cypress Hill a lot. I'm going have to have to revisit them. It's been a minute. Do you know what else I learned about Cypress Hill? Uh, what? Okay, you know the squeal noise that's in Insane in the Membrane? Mm-hmm. You know how it's pretty similar to the noise that's in Jump Around by yeah. House of Pain? Mm-hmm. That's because those are both by DJ Muggs. Mm. DJ Muggs made the beat and was originally going to take it to Cypress Hill. They weren't ready to go back in the studio yet. So he tried to sell it to Ice Cube. Ice Cube didn't want it at the time, so he sold it to House of Pain. And then he went back and revisited a modified version of the track for Insane in the Brain. But the interesting thing is, that squeal noise? Mm. Do you know what it is? Is it a whistle? It is probably a horse. What? Yeah, it is a sample of a horse noise. Probably. Here's where the probably comes in. They asked Muggs about that, and he was like, yeah, it's weird that people think that's a horse, because I'm pretty sure that is a pitch-modulated blues guitar. But then in a later interview, he said, no, I think it's a horn. And then in a later one, he's like, 
Actually, I don't remember. It might be a horse. I was really <laughs> high. <laughs> but people found, like, the horse sample that they think he used. And that... That's a horse. Wow. And that's why that song is so scary. Mm-hmm. Like, there's that air of menace behind that song that really makes it work. Mm-hmm. Because, uh... Horses are terrifying. Mm-hmm. And Muggs knew that on an intrinsic level and either used or recreated the sound of a horse. Wow. Visionary. Mm-hmm. He knew that horses were scary. Even if he didn't know it was a horse, he was sampling. <laughs> yep. I read an interview in High Times magazine, Woodcypress Hill, and all I remember is that they were eating Thanksgiving leftovers and drinking Snapple. <laughs> Good for them. <laughs> Was it like in the middle of July? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like those guys have Thanksgiving leftovers whenever they want them. I feel like if you saw a Cypress Hill Cribs, first of all, they all live in a house together. This is like the monkeys. Uh-huh. And I really want to watch that sitcom now. And second of all, they have a whole room in the house that is just somebody making Thanksgiving dinners all year so that they can have specifically the leftovers. Just a freezer full of stuffing. And Snapple. Yep. That sounds really good. Mm-hmm. I want some fucking Snapple right now. Kiwi strawberry. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. I I mean, I'm just in it for the fun facts. Mm -hmm. I think it's time we had ourselves a battle of the band names. Oh, disappointing. Battle of the band names. Better? Yep. Corey, what band names were you able to find in the text of this comic book? Oh boy, it was a tough one. I only had two. Okay, let's hear them. The first one is probably either metal, like new metal, or some kind of like a, what was called alternative music in the 90s. Mmm, that very useful label. Yes, yeah, I remember. Yeah. And they're called Semblance of Normalcy. Oh, shit, that's good. It is the name of a few albums and songs, but I don't think the name of a band based on the first page of the uh, search results I got. Fair enough. Probably along similar lines and also something that is the name of a few different songs, but I don't think a band. Brutal Reality. Ooh, that is good. Oddly, it is the name of a couple of different Christian rock albums. Which is not where I I saw that going. But uh, I don't know. I don't think they're a good metal band, but I think they're a metal band. Mm -hmm. I think they're kind of dumb kids who are really into the idea of metal. They maybe don't have the chops yet, but in a few years, they'll probably change their name to something else and get better. And then there'll be one or two people who are like, oh, yeah, but did you ever have any of their stuff when they were brutal reality? And then you're like, oh, I should check that out. And you do. And you're like, oh, this isn't very good. That is such a disappointment when that happens. Mm hmm. Another option I had, Filthy Hands. (laughs) Filthy Hands seems like it is probably like a newer throwback indie band. Like, I don't know, I'm thinking of Shaky Hands mostly, but like dirtier, like just like gritty. Like their music has some kind of a grit to it. It's like a more stripped down recording technique, but for like a Builders and the Butchers type band. You know, I could see that. Yeah. When I first hear it, it makes me think of uh, DJ 
music oh. like it's like a scratch pickles kind of situation a bunch of djs with I, dirty I, hands i think if you were a dj with dirty hands that would go really badly for you uh-huh like you'd get on the records and then the records would skip in ways you didn't want it to yeah maybe there is just a really bad dj out there called filthy hands who just like has grime encrusted hands and his records all skip all over the place because he's not a very good dj and he wants an excuse mm-hmm. yeah yeah so an incompetent dj yeah let's go with that you think so yeah that's what he is <laughs> okay say no it's lo-fi okay mm. yeah yeah no i'm doing this on purpose mm-hmm. and it's like like uh i feel like a lot of steve albini's bands are like that mm. you don't like steve albini's production I don't. I feel like I should like shellac, but I don't like them. I don't like tortoise either. I just don't care what 15 people I offend. <laughs> <sighs> what was your other band name? Oh, my other one. These guys are fun. This is yeah. uh, like uh, EDM, but like, you know, it's a good kind. And they're mm-hmm. called Omegatron Gizmo. Nice. I was considering Omegatron, something with Omegatron, but I, I just noticed how many bands were called Omegatron, and there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But Omegatron Gizmo mm-hmm. is nice. Yeah. I think it's like music that's made by and for sex robots. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. Doesn't like like, like, like an electronic version of like 70s wowed out porn music? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's what, that's what sex robots like to listen to. Probably. You never even ask your sex robots what kind of music they want to listen to, do you? It's really all about me. (laughs) My other choice is uh, significantly less fun, but A Whisper Before Dawn. Oh, that sounds legit. Yeah, they're kind of like... I don't don't think I like them, but it sounds legit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, they're they're not a lot of fun. They're they're like a gothic rock band kind of dour. Mm-hmm. Didn't you didn't you put that on your shopping list? I whispered it to you before dawn. It's like, dude, I didn't hear that. Yeah. I don't know why I'm calling you dude, honey. <laughs> but if you want something done, don't whisper it to me before dawn. No, that's like the equivalent of when I was a kid and I would ask my dad questions while he was watching a ball game. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to remember what you're saying. Whisper it before dawn. But I think it sounds like a band name. It does sound like a band like name. Like a... Uh, I don't know, they were inspired by Joy Division and Susie and the Banshees, but they're not as good. Mm. That's a tough pill. Yeah. So, of those names, Omegatron Gizmo? It's probably the most fun. Yeah. You want to go with that? that? Yeah, Omegatron Gizmo with their robot sex music. Wow, wow, wow. Mm-hmm. Was that a... Uh, That's the oh. noise a sex robot makes. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you don't put them on mute. Corey. There's an unmute button? <laughs> I don't like that idea. <laughs> of unmuting your sex robots? Of just having a mute button on a yeah. sex thing. Sorry. <laughs> I don't design them. What was your favorite panel of this issue? Well, we talked about it already. There was a proliferation of moon silhouette panels. Mm -hmm. But out of all of them, and there was a lot, I think my favorite is probably the trio of them on page 15 of uh, Val riding Aragorn across the moon. Mm -hmm. I think the first one is the best silhouette of those. I had that as my choice as well. 
Flying horse plus moon equals epic. It is just a cool-looking panel. My backup is another Aragorn-centric panel. It is on page 11, and I call it Happy Val, Angry Horse. He looks so mad. He really does. That horse does not like criminals. Now, would you say that is a similar face that Misty the Pony made when you would try to ride it as a child? No, man, that that pony was cold as ice. Oh, just no expression? Mm Mm-hmm. Man, that makes it worse. Yep. It's the cold this, you know. Well, Corey, that pony's probably dead now. Does that make you feel better? Not really. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was trying to help. That's <laughs> okay. Well, tell you what. Later this week, come dress like a pony and sneak through your window and talk to you. <laughs> Before dawn. Yeah, cheer you up. Okay. Nope. It's me, Misty. <laughs> Fuck you up. <laughs> I'm not dead after all. It's fine. Oh, good. Me and Sendog are making a diss album about Chub Rock. Ah, that's not cool. No, it isn't. Bad job, Misty. Bad job, (laughs) Sendog. Leave him out of this. He's fine. He shouldn't have made a diss track about Kid Frost. Yeah, it was a long time ago. That's fair. Corey. Yes. We both know that the Hulk rules. In this issue... What were the Hulk's rules? Oh, these are simple rules. Mm. Or it's even a simple rule. There's okay. not more than one. Hulk took a page out of Val's book. Mm-hmm. Or maybe out of Patsy's book after Val gave Patsy a talking to. But that rule is don't give up on a good friendship even when that friend's being kind of a jerk. Who was being a jerk? Patsy was being a jerk. Oh, okay, gotcha. So it's Val not giving up on Patsy. Yeah. Sometimes you can give up on your friends if they're being real jerks. Yep. Okay, I'm just saying. This was not one of those times, and that was the rule that that Hulk took. Fair enough. I had the Hulk being inspired by the same event and having a slightly different takeaway, but along similar lines, and that is that embracing who you are isn't necessarily a rejection of who you were. Mm. Like, you can recognize who you used to be as you move forward and grow. And that's the Hulk's rule. Pretty good. Still trying to go take those pictures down when I had bad hair. We all made choices, Corey. The 90s were a crazy time. (laughs) They really were. Well, Corey, I just got one more question I gotta ask you. Shoot. In the year of our Lord, 1983... And the month of our Lord, March. What Wong doings was Wong doing? So, there's been several instances before of Wong trying to do something nice for Steve and it either going sideways or having an unintended consequence and Mm -hmm. and that sort of a thing. This is kind of along those lines, but this one didn't have the unintended consequence in, in that, like, things went bad for Wong. More so, he got a way to kind of put something over on Steve that brought him a great amount of amusement. Hmm. So Steve is really pretty irritated because he thought that he was going to get answers to some really big questions that he had been meditating on. I see. Do we have the same one? We do not, but I did consider it. Okay. So this will surprise you, probably, that uh, Steve's actually got a little bit of a, a sense of humor. What? 
granted, he did miss about 90% of the jokes in The Holy Grail and, and The Life of Brian, the Monty Python movies that preceded The Meaning of Life, which is what Wong took him to see when it premiered in the U.S. on March 31st. Mm-hmm. And Steve was like, the earlier films were so full of history and <laughs> ribald and... He was pretty excited, but, you sure. know, the meaning of life, like, this is, he spent time meditating about this shit. Sure, and since they were on PBS, he probably assumed that Monty Python was intrinsically educational. Educational, yeah. exactly. They've exactly. got those accents. Yeah, yeah, goes without saying. So Wong took him to see Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, and unlike the previous two films, this one wasn't so straight ahead in terms of its narrative structure. It's like getting back to their roots of sketch comedy, really, mm-hmm. right? And uh, Steve just couldn't fucking follow it. <laughs> and he just, he was so mad. And he's just muttering to himself. Is that large gentleman the fish from before? Yeah. Just everything about it rubbed him totally the wrong way. And he's mm. walking around muttering about it. And so Wong would um, kind of walk next to him in the hallway and like hum the melody from Every Sperm is Sacred mm. or. Uh, Isn't it awfully nice to have a penis? The galaxy song sure. about how insignificant we are and, and all this. And Steve would just mutter even more to himself. And mm. I don't know. It's, Wong is generally not much of a passive aggressive guy, but I got to say, he got a little kick out of giving Steve what for. Yeah, you take your little revenges where you can. Mm-hmm. I think it might speak to the fragile state of mind that Steve found himself in after watching The Meaning of Life. That later on in the month, he ended up misinterpreting something and flying off in a bit of a panic. Mm. See, as I believe you've noted before, Wong has become friends over the years with a number of television executives and uh, really high up people in the entertainment industry and the TV making business. And one of those individuals is, of course, Dick Wolf, creator of Law and Order and many other hour-long dramas, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. And in March of 1983, Dick Wolf got a divorce. Ooh. He had been married for 13 years. And he got divorced, and he decided he wanted to party with some of his friends. He was feeling very exuberant one afternoon, as television executives often are. And so he, you know, made a few phone calls. And uh, one of those phone calls was to Wong. And what he said in the message was, all right, Wong, Dick Wolf's free. I'm back on the prowl. (laughs) And Steve heard that message and he was terrified. uh, He's like, oh, a Dick Wolf. That's terrifying. I've had enough mishaps in that region thanks to my friends in Jackass. I'd better go hide out. This this Dick Wolf is probably traveling with his friend Dick Raven. Oh, no. And they're on the prowl. Well, I'd I'd best best find some place to hide. And so he just disappeared and Wong went looking for him everywhere. He was amused by the situation, but also felt like I better explain to him that Dick Wolf is somebody's name and not a penis-eating wolf, which is what Steve had, of course, assumed. Of course. And so uh, Wong looked all over, and he did eventually find Steve uh, hanging out in a movie theater 
watching The Outsiders. He had been seeing a lot of movies. One of them was the Monty Python film, but he ended up ducking in and, and watched The Outsiders. Thought, pretty good movie and a fine place to hide out. Well, a dick wolf is on the prowl. Long explained the situation to him. Mm. And uh, that made him able to more enjoy, I think, the end of the film. Oh, good. Yeah. Fine performances by Leif Garrett and uh, Tom Waits in that film. Tom Waits was in The Outsiders? Yeah. No shit. Yeah. Oh. And that's the Wong doings that Wong was doing in March of 1983. Wow. Meaning a life and a dick wolf. Yep. Dick wolf's on the prowl. Look out. (laughs) Well, Corey, thank you. I had a great time talking with you about this comic. Mostly. Some. A a bit. Some of what we talked about was about this comic, and all of me talking to you was fun. (laughs) Yes, it was. Thank you so much. (laughs) For giving it your all, as always. (laughs) Likewise. If you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at... Tighten up the defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. That's uh, where you can send those checks for Brumby's Truth and Turner. Sure to be everybody's new favorite buddy cop movie. <laughs> I took such a big drink of rum because I didn't want it to come out my nose when you said that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. And as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically. Can you imagine? At ttwasteland at gmail.com We're up on the social media. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn. You can hear Hub saying funny things on Twitter. If you want to see some really old stuff, you can check Instagram. Yeah, I think there's some old stuff on there. Uh, Lisa was running that and now now she's busy. So we can't figure out how to put it on my phone instead. So if you're an Instagram person... (laughs) Sorry. Tell Zuckerberg I said... (laughs) It's a... That's a double bouncing birds for all of you out there in radio. Uh-huh, <laughs> can't uh-huh. see up right now. Yeah, yeah. Follow the bouncing bird and you can sing along at home. <laughs> <laughs> my, my middle finger, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm bouncing it around. That's enough. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> you can't find this on the computer. There's one more place you can look. Hmm. And that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? Oh, boy. I have probably spent a long day tidying and making things look nice in there. So I'm going to pop my feet up on the coffee table and uh, sit back with some of this delicious sipping rum. And, oh, I don't know, read an old comic book. Nice. Yeah, I I think I might take a page out of your book. Maybe have a little to drink. I'm I'm still having some of this uh, cascade bourbon that that we were gifted. Mm. And, uh... Been reading some old romance comics lately. Maybe read one of those and listen to some Chub Rock. Because that guy's pretty good. I like it. Fine booze, old comics, and Chub Rock. And thou. And wilderness would be paradise enough. Yep. The uh, Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Okay. He's, uh, it's, it's the same, a different passage of that is the one that had the, uh, the moving finger rights and having grit moves on and all thy piety nor wit shan't coax it back to cancel half a line nor all your tears wash out a single word. 
Oh, that's like the moving finger thing you did earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The the moving finger bobs up and down and makes fart noises was the first draft of that. Okay. And then he was like, yeah, you know what? It's ancient times. Um, so let's change that to uh, rights and having it moves on. Yeah, too much. Yeah. Well, it's a busy week in y'all's hearts. <laughs> Indeed it is. If you would like to support the show financially, and why on earth wouldn't you? <laughs> You can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There are also a bunch of bonus videos that are up there that I've made that are me talking about old comic books. I did some recently that are talking about some of the old romance comics that I've been reading lately, and I'll probably post another one pretty soon. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff up there. There are more bonus podcasts. There are a ton of videos and stuff. And that's all up there to thank you guys for donating and making it possible for us to keep doing the show. It really does mean the world to me. Thank you for that. Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-financial way, how would you suggest they do that? Oh, man, just talk to people. Yeah. Like, get out there and say whatever's on your mind. Hey, I have this show, and, and it brings me a small amount of uh, joy. Would you like a small amount of joy? Maybe you should go listen to the show. Yeah, just roll up on people and say, hey, you, uh, you want a small amount of joy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that usually goes well. Yeah, so, and I, I think they'll they'll probably intuit the rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if they don't recoil immediately, just launch into it. Yeah, be like, take up defense! Dot com. Wait. Dot org. Org. <laughs> we don't have a website. <laughs> we should probably get one of those. Yeah, we probably should. And I'll make some. I'll, I'll get work on some uh, rotating GIFs. Mm -hmm. put, that, put those up there. Well, I guess uh, that's another way. I mean, people could help. Yeah, send me some rotating gifts. Send hub rotating gifts. I'll put them on the website, and then we'll be in... Business. Business town. So yeah, telling people about the show is awesome. Another way is leaving a review wherever you get your podcast from. An example of a review you could leave might be, uh... I wouldn't give this podcast the moving finger. <laughs> Five stars. Good choice. And... Until next week. I really do love Cypress Hill. I think they're great, and you should listen to them, and I hope Sendog doesn't get mad at me. I know he's not really Gargoyle. I'm, I'm sure if he hears the show, <laughs> he'll be cool. Yeah. Bye! Bye! And they knew it! We will give people other peeks behind the sausage factory. Into the alley where the other sausage bits go. Into It should be into the sausage factory, not behind the sausage factory. Behind the what sausage factory. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, you, you know, you wanted people to see, people want to see how the sausage is made. And so, <laughs> you know, you got to part the kimono and show them the sausage factory. That sounds horrible. <laughs> I enjoy mixing metaphors, but those two did not mix That's well. a bad job. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry.
<laughs> jinx. Whoa. Okay, well, you can't talk after I said jinx. Why not? That's the rule. What? You never did jinx? When you say something at the same time and the other person says jinx, then you can't talk until somebody says your name. Oh, uh, no. No. That is the rule, and you're breaking it repeatedly, Corey. I don't care about your stinking rules, man. Wow, you're a rebel. Well, how did you play Jinx? I didn't really play it, but sometimes people would say, Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Sure. Did you ever actually buy anybody a Coke? Of course not. No, so it's an empty promise. They're making you Welsh on a bet that you didn't even know you were making. Well, just because somebody says you owe them something doesn't necessarily mean you do if you didn't agree to owe that to them or it's not part of like a law so you live in a lawless society where there are no consequences whatsoever to jinxes and the more of a bastard you are the surer you are to win is that from fist of the north star because that sounded like it. <laughs> it's from warlords of the 21st century i don't know what that is it's a bad 80s action movie and as the guy's saying that he's hitting a button and this big drill comes out of the side of his rv wow is Chuck Norris in it? No, it's like no-name people. Oh. A guy makes gasoline out of chicken manure. Methane gas for powering vehicles. Did it come out after Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome? I think it's a rip-off of that. Mm, that's annoying. You ready to get started? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs>